I thought about people <clears throat> that are teachers like Lisa and Jill and things like that. And I saw a cartoon where this little boy went up to the teacher in school and said, I don't want to scare you. But my dad said that if my grades don't improve, somebody's going to get a spanking. <laughs> so let that be a warning to you. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that your word would make a an indelible imprint on our hearts and that uh, the things that are special to you, Lord, would be special to us. That we would not skip lightly over your word, but that we would dwell on it and um, and let it just take deep root in us. All for the glory of God. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, a few weeks ago, we were in the first chapter of First Peter for a few verses. I'm going to look at some of these same verses just uh, briefly again and say a few other things about them. And then just a couple of more verses in First Peter. I figure at this rate sometime around 24. 73 will be finished. So. But anyway, why, why is it so important to know God's Word? It's because Scripture calls us to, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. It tells us to be ready in season and out of season. It tells us to always, to all people, to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. These are pretty good reasons to preach the gospel because God commands. That's what he says that we're supposed to do as his people. <clears throat> you know, if somebody asks you to describe the shape of a square, you might say a whole lot of different things, but there would have to be some common points that defined what a square is. Like maybe it has 90 degree angles, it has equilateral sides, four equilateral sides, things like that. And if you get one of these defining points wrong, then you haven't described a square any longer. You've described something else. And the same, same way is true of the gospel. If you get some of the points wrong, then you're not describing the gospel anymore. It doesn't fit what Scripture says. So if you're going to speak the gospel faithfully, it's necessary to conform to certain truths. Truths that don't change because of customs, because of speech, because of what time of it is, what, what era, or anything like that. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Of first importance. That gives you the foundation right there. What's the first importance? The death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And then Paul gives eyewitness accounts that what he says is true. And then finally, his own account as an eyewitness, testifying to the truth of what he's saying. As we share the gospel, it's vital that we clearly show the redemptive work of Christ to everyone that hears us. More and more, it seems like these days, our audience doesn't have a clear understanding of the biblical outline, the biblical worldview. Paul shared in accordance with the scriptures in his evangelism. And he did it among those that didn't know little about the scriptures. Most of them were pagans. Some of them were Jews, but most of them were Jewish or, excuse me, were Gentile believers. And their background in scripture was little or none. And so he shared the scriptures showing that Christ's coming and redemption was woven throughout the story of God and the history of his people. D.A. Carson says, The gospel is integrally tied to the Bible storyline. Indeed, it is incomprehensible without understanding that storyline. But the point is simply this. The good news of salvation through Jesus Christ makes sense in the context of this storyline and no other. If you start talking about Jesus apart from Scripture, it makes no sense. Why do you need a Savior? A Savior from what? What sin? Why are you estranged from God? It makes no sense to talk about being saved apart from the Bible story. And if you don't know the Bible story, then you're just you're swimming in the dark. You don't know what's going on. Regardless of our method of evangelism, we need to clearly present the gospel within the storyline of Scripture. How did it all begin? What's gone wrong? Is there any hope? What's the end going to be? These are questions within questions, questions behind the questions that you don't always get, but this is really what it boils down to. This is what you get when people, when bad things happen, people are going to say, how could a person do or think something like that? They're basically saying what went wrong. What's happened to cause people to think like this, to do that? And the scriptures give us the answer from creation to redemption to restoration. Like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's the story of God revealed by God that causes our heart to burn within us. God must open our minds to understand it and give us new hearts that are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's the story of redemption that grabs hold of us and compels us to speak the truth to anybody that we hear by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone we share the gospel and the hope is that they will come to a knowledge of the truth united with Christ forever
First and Second Peter were probably written in the early to mid 60s AD, before or during the beginning of the persecution by the Roman Emperor Nero. Christianity had not been banned officially yet, but there was a growing hatred for Christians, especially because they lived different lives than everybody else. And that needs to characterize us, living different lives than everybody else. Secondly, they refused to worship pagan gods. And that's a, a trick these days. And they were bold to preach the gospel. Those three things. There are others, but those were the three prominent things that caused the people to hate the Christians. They were different. They wouldn't worship the pagan gods. And they preached the gospel. Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Paul in Philippians 3.20 tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter died many centuries ago. But this is a message for us today. It's timeless because Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God's message is intended to guide Christians no matter what the age they live in. Peter's themes are suffering. They're the coming kingdom, the call to holiness, and the holiness that leads to hope. And in First Peter, the first chapter, we looked at a, a few weeks ago, first five verses. What you see is Peter's joy when he tells believers the great blessings of God. And who, by God's great mercy... He's caused us to be born again, remember we talked about it, to a living hope. A living hope, not a dead hope. A living hope because the living hope is a person. Any other kind of hope is not based on anything that's, that's true, that's lasting, that's real. It's a living hope. It's a hope that's based on an eternal living person and the outcome of our living hope is an inheritance that will always be it's going to be vibrant and it's going to be reserved or set apart in heaven for us those who have been given this living hope are protected by god is what peter says through faith and peter says for a for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Normally we talk about salvation as complete. We've been saved. It happened once and for all, and that's the end of it. It did happen once and for all, but that's not the end of it. Scripture speaks about being saved, about have been saved and will be saved. And it does it for a reason. 
Salvation has many parts like regeneration, justification, repentance, sanctification, and glorification. They're all parts of salvation. Regeneration is a is an instantaneous, subjective, and moral change within a person. Subjective means it's not something you can put your hands on. It's an inner thought. It's an inner idea. It's an inner feeling. And it changes your morals. Your whole moral character is changed. Justification is also instantaneous. And it's what the Bible calls forensic, or what theologians call forensic. It's a legal transaction. It's like a judge in a court declaring you not guilty. It's a legal entity. It's something that happens once for all, and it changes. And it's not... And it's objective because it, it's a, something you can look to and count on from the Word of God. Regenerate, regeneration and justification are also subjective, but they're not instantaneous. They take place over a period of time. But anyway, all of these are parts of salvation, and they're, they're different ways they're used in Scripture shows this if we're careful to look at it. The salvation that will be revealed in the last time is the final part of salvation. When believers go to be with the Lord, the glorification. Let me reread just these first five verses quickly. Now I realize that some people can read these verses one time and they get it down pat. You don't really think I believe what I just said, do you? <laughs> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's a lot. That's a lot right there. And it's the sort of thing that if you sit down, you can dwell on it for many hours just thinking about what Peter is talking about here. Now let me look at the next two verses, 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? 
in the fact that you've got an inheritance. And in fact, uh, due to the fact that God's great mercy that's caused us to be born again, that's what he's talking about in this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The natural response to this hope that we have, according to Peter, is to rejoice. Yet he says we have to rejoice, or we should rejoice, even in the midst of various trials that may come our way. The verse says, for a little while, they will not last forever. Although sometimes we don't believe that when we're going through it. Even we, even if when we suffer our whole lives, that if we, even if we suffer for our whole lives, that's a very short period of time compared to eternity. It can't compare with the eternal joy that's coming. We need to put these things side by side so that when we're overcome seemingly by trials and suffering, we can put it next to forever versus a short period of time to put everything into proper perspective. Here's a letter that a family got from their daughter in college. Dear Mom and Dad, I thought I'd drop a note to you to let you know what's been happening. We had a fire in the dorm, and it was destroyed. But don't worry, because I moved in with a nice guy named Jim. He quit high school after the 11th grade to get married, but don't worry, because he's divorced now. Also, I may be pregnant, but don't worry, because we're, making, we're talking of getting married. It says, in shock, the parents continued reading. Don't worry, everything I've written is false. There was no fire, and there's no gym. But I did get a C in French, and I flunked calculus. <laughs> I just wanted you to put everything in proper perspective. <laughs> and that's what we need to do with suffering. Put it in proper perspective. Compare it to what's forever. We need to have a proper perspective of trials and suffering. Our faith is much more precious than gold or anything that's perishable. Though it may be tested by fire, our faith is purified and strengthened by testing. Otherwise, God wouldn't do it. Otherwise, if he loves us, which he says he does, and everything is going to work out for our good if we're if we love God and if we are called according to his purpose, he's not an absent God. He's here. He knows. Peter's just reporting 
in different words what the Old Testament says. Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Psalm 66.10 David says, For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. Now, do you think if metal could talk, it would tell you how much fun it is to be refined? It would be screaming like crazy, which is what we do often. Silver and gold are refined in a fire because they are so valuable. Taking the time and trouble to refine them is worth the effort so that the metal may come forth pure and free from impurities. But Christian faith is far more precious and no impurities are to be left in us. God is taking care of it because he's making a people for his son. Which is what he says. A people for his son. To glorify him forever. Some people are tested to the point of great suffering. And even death. When the affliction comes. And when the affliction comes to the human nature. We tend to forget scriptures about suffering very quickly. Tribulation obscures our vision, and we groan. We don't see how God can be working out his plan in such pain and agony. But someday we'll understand, he says. We understand the principles now. The principles are not hard to grasp. But later things will change. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. We just know in part now, but we're going to know fully. We're going to know why some people go through great suffering and pain, why some people die, when we can see no reason for it now. It makes no sense. The ultimate goal of trials is the reward of glorification as the revelation, meaning the second coming of Christ. Despair during trials might seem natural to humanity as a whole, but it shouldn't seem natural to Christians. So despair should not seem natural. When you suffer a trial, understand it's only a test. God's at work to prove your faith, to draw you closer to Jesus, and to ignite a glow within you. Once when Martin Luther was going through a period of depression, and I gather he went through a lot of those, his wife Katie came into his study wearing all black with her face covered with a black veil. Luther asked her, who died? She said, God died. Luther responded, silly woman, God hasn't died. She said, oh, I thought by the way you were acting that God had died. That's what we do sometimes. We act like God died, abandoned us, never to be seen again. 
Again, Peter's point is that in this world there will be trials, but these trials are momentary in the grand scheme of things. The faith displayed during trials will be the faith that one day will deliver us out of this world. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In these trials. In, in the things that God has done for you, you greatly rejoice. It doesn't say rejoice because you're going through the fire. You rejoice as you go through the fire because you've received an everlasting inheritance. You're protected by the power of God. That's what you rejoice in. Not that you're going through a trial. Suffering is a tool in the hand of God to bring about revelation and glory. Jesus is our example, of course. Christian joy does not deny the hardships of life, and it doesn't pretend we're happy when we experience deep, deep sadness. While we live in the in this fallen world, grief and joy exist together. They always have and they always will. We grieve because life is hard and behavior and because pain is real. So life is hard, pain is real, it's not an illusion. But in faith we can rejoice, looking forward to the day when all this will be revealed, knowing Christ's resurrection guarantees it. Again, that's why living hope, the guarantee that Jesus gives us by his resurrection. We think we need a special way of sharing the gospel with various people of different backgrounds. We think we need one way of sharing the gospel with a group we know, another way of sharing the gospel with people from a different culture, another way with people of a different language, a different religion. And what this really does to me, it seems like it shows a lack of confidence in the gospel itself. In his eagerness to share the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We might also add to the Jew first, also to the Greek, to the Buddhist, to the Muslim, to everyone. Techniques and apologetics might be important to know, but you can't place your confidence in them. Ligon Duncan says, We are not the reason the gospel works. The gospel is the reason the gospel works. We don't have to improve on the gospel and in order to share the truth with somebody because they're from a different culture. The truth doesn't change. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, lift up your eyes 
So let your countenance be overshadowed by temporary pain and trials because Jesus has risen from the dead and the gospel is there for everyone and it's not hidden. It's plain to see for those that want to see it. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to understand your word, that we would not make it more difficult than it is, but that we'd also not make it simple when it's not simple. But help us to investigate, to study, and to meditate on what you say and to draw closer to you that we might see the face of God, the beatific vision of who you are and what you would have us to be. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.